Hello, friends. Welcome back to How to Talk to Weirdos, where we discuss communication with people who are different than you. And since we're all unique, that's pretty much everyone. When someone has a different style of communication, they can seem like a weirdo. And if they seem that way to you, you probably seem that way to them. As I like to say, everyone's kind of a weirdo. We're going to talk about some of the assumptions that we make and other pitfalls of communication so that we can all improve. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Welcome back to How to Talk to Weirdos. We have a very special guest today, Ulrike Seminati. She's a coach, a trainer, and a consultant who operates globally. She brings a wealth of experience as a former C-level executive, which has added to her expertise in authentic leadership and impactful communication. By combining research and practical experience, she enables leaders to establish trust and lead change through effective communication. She's no-nonsense, easy to work with, and helps people make lasting improvements. Ulrike, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Jeremy. Pleasure to have, It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and let me ask, did I pronounce that at all correctly? Yes, yes. I mean, I have one of these very typical German first names. Nobody apart from people in Germany pronounce it correctly. So How do you pronounce <laughs> I it? I don't mind. Ulrike. Ah, okay. That's how it sounds really in German, but yeah. I've been living in France for the past 26 years, working in Switzerland the past 15, and nobody uh, pronounces my name correctly, <laughs> so that's completely fine. <laughs> All right, well, sorry about that, and we'll put notes, we'll put notes in there about how to uh, pronounce it. So tell me, in your profile, you talk a lot about communication uh, specifically around affecting change. Why is that something that you focus on, and how did you get there? Hmm. Um, so I'm focusing on that because I think every leader around the world is facing change or has to implement change. And it's very, very hard to bring people on board. And the interface of making change happen is communication. Mm -hmm. So that's why, very simple actually, it's the one thing that you need to master to a certain degree at least so that you can implement change and bring people on board. Even in your private life, there's change all over the place. So I think that's relatively logical to many people. Why? How did I get there? is a bit of a different or longer story. Let's try to keep it as short as possible. <laughs> I've been working in corporate communications for 23 years in leading positions as well. I have been a C-level executive for three years, my last three years in the corporate world. And I have, I have run tons of campaigns, obviously, around change and bringing people on board and the corporate messages and the CEO videos and what have you. And I realized that you, you can put as much money as you want. You can put the best creative agencies on that. When your leaders do not communicate from human to human, then it doesn't land. It does not land. It only lands when people get it translated, let's say, by their leader, by someone they trust, by someone they, they know personally as well. Not, not only the CEO. The CEO plays an important role for sure, the C-level executives too. But it's very important that the middle managers are also brought on board and are able to communicate. And this is where this passion comes from on my side, because I have real passion for that, because I think people fear change. Most of us fear change. Mm -hmm. And this creates a lot of unrest and anxiety in organizations and in, in people's hearts at the end. And people don't feel very well at work because of that. And I want to make a change there. I want to make a contribution by helping leaders to put people in a certain way in a safe place again in the midst of the change 
because they are able to better understand what they really need, what they need themselves first, but also what their team members need, so that they can create an environment where people feel seen, understood, where they feel my needs are not just put under the carpet and I have to shut up and just follow, mm -hmm. but where they feel, okay, I can come in and my perspective is important too, even if it's maybe not the expected perspective. And, and at the same time, I want to leverage diversity with that because that is what it's all about at the end. But um, yeah, that's where I'm coming from. And now I'm doing this for, for the past. Leading change, the leading change focus came in one, one and a half years ago, but I'm doing the communication trainings for leaders, leadership trainings, leading with authenticity is one of my core topics as well for nearly five years now. Oh, that's great. So when you're talking about a larger corporation, there are a lot of places where that communication can break down between, you know, the CEO and the C-suite and then between the C-suite and maybe directors or middle managers and then the managers to the individuals. Where do you see a breakdown the most often? I would say between the C-levels and the next level leaders already. I think there you lose probably most because C-levels believe, we all believe that others understand what we understand. We all believe that what we think is logical is logical to others. We believe our reality is the reality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the first big mistake that we all make in communication all the time, actually. But I think the, the biggest gap is there because the C-level leaders... We have so much more background information because what is discussed in an executive committee, I know that by my own experience, is much, much broader and much more in-depth and has much more context than what is communicated already to the next leadership level. Even if these are senior leaders leading very big teams, very international teams, if it's a really big corporation. And C-level leaders often think that they have the same knowledge, that they know that, they understand it and see it from the same perspective. And that is the first big mistake. I think we lose a lot in there because a C-level is always more interested, for sure, in the big company goals like we want 20% growth, we want exactly this number on the bottom line, we want to be, a, I don't know, a 10 billion company by 2030, these goals. yeah, These are compelling for C-level leaders and especially for the CEO. They are not super compelling for the leaders just below the C-levels. They are not. Because for these people, it's much more important, how will my team work? How hard will my job be as well when we shake the organization again, when I have to relocate 25% of my team members? That's what they are up to. They don't care if it's 20% of growth written on a piece of paper on a big poster campaign or 15 or 30. That's not, that's not really, you know, they will not embrace that with their heart. They have completely different sorrows and different things to do. And then the C-levels. And I think here we miss already the communication because the C-levels communicated or the CEO in the way they see it. And for sure, the next leaders will understand it rationally, for sure. But they will not buy in emotionally. And this is where we lose a lot of capacity when it comes to breaking it down for the rest of the organization. I like that. And, you know, talking about communication in general, assumptions are the bane of everyone's existence. You assume that other people will see and understand things the same way that you do. And unless you really stop and probe and then dig and ask them what questions they have or what they think or feel about it, you're never going to quite make that connection. So that's really important. And then do you think that it gets easier between, say, like directors, managers and, and individual producers? 
it depends on the organization and I think it depends very much on how the senior managers, if you want to call them like we'll call them like that, so the people below the sea levels, how they enact the whole thing. So if they just copy what they have seen done at the very top, then you will have the same big big gap opening up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they are already thoughtful enough to understand, okay, they come with this message, I know it's important for them from that perspective and for the overall organization, this is what we need to do for sure, I understand that. But I know I have a level of self-awareness that I know for me it's different and that I can also for myself, first of all, be very clear about how do I relate to these goals, what's my personal motivation behind that, not only my team motivation, but really my personal motivation, do I have one? And if I don't, how can I find one? (laughs) Indirectly maybe. So relate to it first to yourself. And if leaders do that, then the gap is smaller because then they will really start thinking not only of themselves and how they relate, automatically you will in a second step think, how do potentially my next level leaders, if there's another leadership level below them, maybe the junior leaders, which you have them, frontline managers, how will they think about that? Because they're really in the operational already. They may be in production, for example, and totally far away from what's happening in let's call the ivory tower where we have the the sea suit sitting and um and it depends really very much on these on these levels in between and i think there is the key the first level you know the higher level the middle managers may be below them if there are several levels these these sandwich positions like we call them mm-hmm. i think are super crucial and every single leader makes a huge difference so when already there's a big break in the beginning a big back uh, a big uh, gap where you cannot connect dots anymore correctly then it's getting worse obviously for all the people below that person but when we have that cascade running in a way that it goes from very corporate very very high level to more concrete for the team, more concrete for the individual as well. And when we go down into the nitty-gritty, really, and in translating it truly to others, because they care about something totally different that at the end has absolutely nothing directly to do with the initial wording of the communication or the the, the, the question-answer document which you got or the bullet points which you got about how to communicate that, then actually when we really translate this, it becomes very different. And suddenly people understand it because it's relevant to them. Mm-hmm. It's in the detail that they live every single day. They have a job where they come to work for, let's say, eight hours per day, and they have a reality. And this reality changes when changes are happening, when there's transformation. And, and that is what concerns them. Will I work with the same colleagues? Will I even keep my job? Biggest fear, obviously, of all um, Will I have job security for the next five years or at least somehow? Can I plan to pay the studies for my children because they will be expensive over the next four years? What can I do to maintain that, to secure that in a certain way? So they have totally different perspectives on what is important and what is not than what's happening at the top. And you need to translate it. So if they need to make changes to secure their workplace then it's not about making changes just to have 20% of growth because they don't care. Obviously, why should they care directly of 20% growth? They will care if the 20% growth means we maintain this production side where I'm working in and with its full capacity, that's a good argument. That's interesting for me. Mm -hmm. So we really need to think about that very carefully and not just take what's coming from the top and, and, and just repeat it actually in this more or less the same words. Two things that it makes me think about is there's a game called Telephone. I don't know if you've ever played it where you stand in a circle 
and you whisper a message into one person's ear and then they whisper it and it goes around and by the time it gets to the last person or the person who started it it's a totally different message so that's one thing that i'm seeing and the other and i think it's good advice always whether you are talking to a large audience or you know just relaying this kind of information is so what like what's in it for you what does this mean to you and if you really stop and think about it it absolutely changes the way that you convey a message if you really stop and think what the other person is going to be affected by. Mm-hmm. And what they really also need to hear. You know, because we, I think the what's in it for you is obviously the core, what you said here, that's the core thing to think of. What's in it for them and what's in it for me as well. So I, I think we need to always think in both ways, not just for the others, but also for ourselves, to stay authentic, to... Uh, to just come up from a very um, solid place, a grounded place. But the the what's in it for them has a lot to do also in which words they can hear. You know, we have adopted a specific dictionary in the corporate world that more or less is all around outperforming and growth. Yeah, these are one of these very key words. Ag- agility, for example, is part of that as well. Success as well sounds not that dangerous but for many people it's just not compelling at all Mm -hmm. or at least not what is understood which is financial success Um, and I think it's really about thinking what words do need do people need to hear so for sure many profiles who are in very senior leadership positions they love the words performance achievement ambition and all of that but most people on the ground like 70 percent roughly like none of these words (laughs) many even think that these words are a threat to their current environment because logically to achieve these words or make them a reality you have to change something and change is always ambiguity and anxiety for them Mm -hmm. and so we need to come up with different dictionaries it's much more about if you cannot guarantee job security which today is often very difficult actually you might want to say we can at least ensure a certain business continuity yeah instead of saying oh massive growth Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not about a massive growth for people who are really security oriented, but more about business continuity, because that implies that, yes, we do our best to maintain a certain stability here, even if it looks a bit like chaos, but at least we try to do the best. And and, and then really empowering people much, much more on that side and telling them, hey, if you think this is too chaotic, too ambiguous, we have no clue where we're going, where we will be in six months, for example, because we just start a massive transformation process then can you come in with your skills, your strengths? If you're a great planner, can you help us to plan more properly? If you're somebody who's very detail-oriented, can you watch out for pitfalls we might step into? And often we do exactly the opposite because we think we don't want to hear all of that. We just go there like a bulldozer and go, 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 yeah, as quickly as possible. And this is when big mistakes often happen and when we lose people and we lose their motivation, we lose their trust, buy-in and all of that. So I think it's a, it's a different way, a bit more maybe also stepping back from the change as it is just announced and thinking for a second, <laughs> really, you know, go into this famous meta position, thinking what is best. What is actually the thing that I need to do? Because I have a team that is, in a, is composed in a specific way by specific people, very different personality styles most likely. And some of these personality styles will show resistance. I know it. 
But why do they do that? They don't do that just to harm the whole thing. They don't do that because they love to block things. I mean, some might, obviously, always have exceptions. But usually they do it because they fear that it will become completely out of control and that their current reality will drastically change towards something they have no idea what it will be. And that is that is extremely frightening. And And just acknowledging that, but not just acknowledging it, using the strengths instead of the people who are thinking like that, because they are super reliable people at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we often forget that, that these are the people you can really trust. Once they are on board, they are on board. They will not give up after two or three weeks because it's already boring or because they have an additional ambition, what they want to achieve already now, whereas you have hardly started the first project. They will stay on board and bring things to an end. And... I think we need to shift the way how we think about different profiles that we have in the corporate organizations and the value of these profiles, especially in change, where at first glance you think, oh, the change adopters, the early adopters are the right ones, it's easy, they come on board, they're change ambassadors and, and it's all very dynamic and so on and everybody needs to become like that. I think that's not the right approach, actually. And the, the roadblocks that the people who are resistant often are correct. So I've been on many projects where the person in charge of it says, we are going to change our CRM over the next three months. And there's one person who says, it's going to take at least a year. And the guy's like, nope, three months, get on board. And he's like, well, I'm not going to get on board because I know it's going to fail. And a lot of times that person has really good information and the leader just isn't able to hear it. So stepping back and listening to it and just even just a follow-up question, why do you think it's not going to work? And they may have really good information that the leaders never thought about. Yeah, yeah I agree. Because what you said, that's a fantastic example. Because if you ask, obviously, they will see a lot of steps where it will not work out or where we need a longer approval because it is like that or because the rollout in the number of countries behind that. There is one or two which are blocking because of whatever reasons. Yeah, it can be something completely new administrative, which is just local, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, what leaders, I don't know, only leaders, what, what people who have an idea tend to do in that situation is to not listen. Right. <laughs> And to repeat the message with even stronger words, using the same wrong words, which people already would like before in the first place. And when you use it a second time, you make it actually worse. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you have created a beautiful resistance, <laughs> which is very solid, and which you will not be able to just remove easily with more arguments that are always going into the same direction. But the example is a good one. That's exactly the example that this is the moment to listen, even if it's not in the agenda of the meeting and even if there's not enough time left, well, sacrifice maybe something else to, mm -hmm. to listen to the arguments. We all suffer from confirmation bias. And if I give an idea and four people love it and two people don't, I listen to the four who loved it. <laughs> and I don't want to yeah. really listen to the other two. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Because it's also a question of um, rejection. Nobody likes rejection. Human beings don't like rejection. It's one of our biggest fears. So for sure, we use the confirmation bias to stay in line with our ideas, with our argumentation. And our ego is happy then because mm -hmm. we can say, hey, yeah, I have a good idea. Yeah, you've brought it across. Great. You have convinced them, at least the majority. And it's all fine. And at the end, things are cooking under the surface and, and we tend to look away. Yeah. 
So you, we talked about people who are resistant to change. Are there, is there a typical profile of people who are going to be more resistant to change and, and how do you work with them? Yeah, so I use the four motivational drivers of the Olympic system. It's a bit similar to the DISC model, which many people know, or the four-color model, how it's called as well. Um, but I use the four drivers of the Olympic system, and we have four drivers, dominance, which is like the word says, people who have status, power, visibility, gift direction, and so on. You have stimulants, people who love everything that's new and exciting, mm -hmm. creative, but also chaotic, potentially. You have balanced people, and these are the security, safety-oriented, which are detail-oriented, very analytical, very reliable. Usually, they bring things to an end, and you have harmony people who are very similar to balanced people, but with a very strong people focus, actually. They really care about the stability of the social environment that I have at work. And the balanced people are actually statistically 70 or make up 70% of the world's population oh. across cultures. So it doesn't matter if you're sitting in Indonesia or in Argentina or in the UK or in the US or in France. It's in average around 70%. And that is enormous. So we have a big, big majority here. And what I said before is like, we then try to make out of these people, agile people who act like dominance or stimulants people, for example, instead of saying to them or acknowledging that they have very different strengths and that their strengths lie in analyzing, planning properly, not missing any details, really f watching out for mistakes and seeing them before they happen, for example. And we tend to see that negatively. And when I work with organizations, I insist very often on this profile, also because it's easier than for people in my training to admit that they are that profile. <laughs> because obviously I have a lot in my trainings. A lot of leaders are dominance balance mixes today. Mm -hmm. I think it will shift over time. It will be more diversified in the future. But for the moment, that's what we have out there. A good majority, 80-90%, what I see is around a stimulants balance uh, sorry, a dominance balance mix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So themselves, they have this resistance to change, but at the same time are excited about it because it gives them career opportunities, for example. And then we have people who do not care about the career opportunities. They just care about the stability of their role. They're happy to do the same thing for several years or even many years. They love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we think this is not attractive anymore or boring or slow all of that and i really want to move away from this perspective but, but because yes you can see it like that especially when you're a stimulants person you will see it like that because you're really on the opposite side of the spectrum but i think it's something extremely valuable because in these days where we have so many changes going on and we have a lot of changes in parallel going on in organizations small ones big ones short term long term everything we need some people who maintain a certain stability because if without them, business is not running anymore. I mm -hmm. mean, you need that. And this is, I think, what organizations need to value and understand. Okay, we know you're difficult to bring on board. We know you don't like it. <laughs> we understand also why it's uncomfortable. We need to go out of the comfort zone and all of that. But we aim, we don't do that to explode this company, to destroy it. We do it because we want to create, and I use that nice word again, business continuity, <laughs> or a word that sounds similar. Yeah, Something mm -hmm. where you have an association with stability in a certain way or security. And 
And then bringing them on board by really saying, hey, and can you help us to make it happen, actually? We really need your help. We need your eagle eye on pitfalls. Mm -hmm. We need that. Look into this, please. Or you are my red flag person, officially. Right. <laughs> I ask you to raise the red flag when you see something's going wrong. It's still up to the leader to, to use this argument then, yes or no, and to say, okay, there's a red flag, I see saying thank you, but we can't do it differently this time. You can do that with respect and still take a different decision, for sure. But at least listening, like you said in the beginning, at least listening to the ideas and the arguments, because I think there are many in there where I have seen also many change projects where if we had listened early on to people who raised the red flag, yes, we would not have been started with the same speed, for sure. But certainly when it came to the middle or towards the end of the process, when we were hitting a lot of problems, mm -hmm. we would have avoided that. And we would have been faster at the end, certainly with the implementation. And I think seeing that it's a trade-off, but doing things a bit differently and accepting that at the beginning, maybe something needs to be more carefully thought through with the help of people who do that, who love to do that to avoid afterwards that you run into problems, many additional costs, for example, which often come up as well, because nobody thought about that. Yeah, because you haven't asked. <laughs> so, right. Or listen. There were certainly a lot of people who were aware, <laughs> but you haven't asked. So you haven't asked because you didn't want to involve them because you thought there are people who will resist the change anyway and so on. So we have a bias here as well when it comes to implementing who, which type of profile is actually a valuable profile for change. And that's what... Um, What I think we need to shift when we really want to sustainably live in changing times, and what is, which is what, what we, we need to do that. That's what's happening, actually. So if you want to do that, then we need to shift the way how we do it. When I'm talking to people who are coming up to this same thing that you're talking about, I, I use the analogy of a sports team. A sports team that is all offense and no defense is never going to win. The defense is not as much fun. Offense is always more exciting and more fun, but defense is what's going to ultimately help you win the game. And the people who resist change are basically like defense because they're looking out to stop problems ahead of time. But it, it's hard for the offensive people to listen to them. Yeah, exactly. Because then I cannot score or they think I can't score quick enough. Yep. Yeah, it's a good analogy. It's, it's exactly like that. But then the stimulus people may get halfway through a project and get stimulated by something different and want to move on. So yes, it takes exactly. all kinds. All right. As we are about to start wrapping up, I'm going to ask you my three questions. Are there any things I didn't ask that you wanted to talk about today? No, I think we have had a conversation which was very complete for the moment. <laughs> Perfect. For the moment. Mm -hmm. And we can always do it again when more things come yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so for my three standard questions, this one's part A and B, what is a place you have loved to travel to? It sounds like you've, you've been to a lot of places. And what is one place you haven't been but want to go? Both are in Africa, actually. Huh? So I loved to travel to Tanzania. Uh, obviously for nature and animals, but also for all the different human beings and, and, and how they live in very different stages of development, actually. It's very, very interesting. Gave a totally different perspective on, mm -hmm. on what joy as well is. Mm -hmm. And another thing, and that's really for the nature, but it will certainly then be as well for the human beings once in place, it would be to go to Namibia. would like to go there. Nice. I've Sooner or later. <laughs> never been to either one, but they sound great. What is one, who is one example of a great communicator and it can be a public figure or just someone in your personal life? 
So that is really a difficult question because I don't have one of these people where I think, oh, they're great. They're the obvious ones, you know, mm. which are really just great speakers. But I was recently thinking about something that I found really interesting. You know, two very well-known guys, I think, Tony Robbins and Eckhart Tolle. Mm -hmm. If you look at Tony Robbins, you have a person who's very outspoken and brings in a, an enormous energy, yeah, and probably most people who say, oh, it's a fantastic speaker. But then you have this totally different style of an Eckhart Tolle who is very, very calm and who speaks permanently out of an authentic place mm -hmm. all the time without controlling or thinking beforehand what he will say because it's the exact opposite of how he is. I mean, he's in the now. So what comes in the now comes. And I when, I, when I first started listening to him, I think this is really magic. It's a very different way of communicating. And at the same time, it's extremely powerful because it's just very, very true yeah, seen from a people perspective, how he is, comes from a very true place. And this is really fascinating. I think we don't see that very often out there. It's very rare. Even the best speakers, it always feels like something, you know, because obviously public, big public speeches, they have trained it as well. Mm -hmm. So there's always a certain loss of authenticity that comes in sooner or later because of that alone. And I think that's why that's why I would choose Eckhart Tolle. I like <laughs> it. A different example. <laughs> yeah, to me, Tony Robbins, he's dynamic and fun, but it it's just so over the top that I don't quite trust it. And there are some people who are just calm and soothing and just feel mm -hmm. trustworthy. And those are the people I like as well. And what is one piece of communication advice that you think everyone can benefit from? I think it's a very simple one, which I usually give, and it's really start listening first. <laughs> so if you, it's not about shaping the perfect message or preparing perfectly for your next presentation. That's all fine for sure. Yeah. But I think if there's one thing we do not enough, it's just listening. And if people want to keep something in mind about listening, next time when you listen, listen to understand mm -hmm. instead of listening to reply. We always listen to reply. Stop thinking about your answer, about the question you will, will raise. Just listen to understand. And if then you have two or three seconds of a gap afterwards because you don't know what to say, because you have not prepared it, that's fine. <laughs> but at least you really try to understand. And I think that will ma would make a huge difference when it comes to the way we speak with each other and understand each other. It's not easy to do, though. <laughs> no, it takes practice. No, because our head is like <laughs> spinning around permanently all the time. It's very, very hard. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yet, I think I always say to people, try it once just for a minute. Yeah. It's hard enough. A minute is very long to just really listen and, and doing nothing else in your head. Yeah. Not preparing something, nothing. Right. Not relating it immediately to something that you have heard and then you're already away with your thoughts. Just trying to focus just for one minute, start with that, and then you will see how it goes. It's like meditative listening. Yes, nearly. <laughs> I like it. All right. This has been a pleasure. Where can people learn more about you and or reach out to you? So it's my name, which is my website, ulrikaseminati.com. You find there the programs I do for corporations. I also have courses for individuals that start in February, um, where you can just sign up for it for 90 minutes of very specific courses around communicating, leading change, um, being more authentic, creating more presence, these kind of things. And um, you can also find me for sure on LinkedIn with also my name, Ulrika Seminati, and just get in touch very easily there with a direct message. Perfect. I will go ahead and put links in the show notes so that people can reach out to you easier. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thank you, Jeremy. It was a pleasure to speak to you. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of How to Talk to Weirdos. Hopefully you found it both interesting and useful. If either of those things is true, please share. Do you have a friend or a coworker who could benefit from listening? Maybe a family member you're going to be spending the holidays with? Please send them a link to your favorite episode and see if your conversations don't get just a little bit easier. I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much and have a great week.